City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Okay, welcome back to City Limits. We've got our regular housing update today and we've got three guests on the line. We've got Harold Morosi and Jack Burdens, both from Friends of Public Housing. Um, and we've got Shane McGrath from Housing for the Age Action Group. So welcome to you all. Oh, hi, how are you doing? Thank you. Hello. Hello. Thanks for the intro, Zeb. Also, um, it's myself, Meg Kimber and Zeb, and Karina's pressing the buttons, and Kevin Healy is away today. So this is our last City Limits for the year, but we'll be back in February, and we're going to um, have a good chat about public housing. And also, Zeb, you organised an interview for the show today. Is that right? Yes. Uh, we also have an interview with Kerry Cassidy from the Disability Resources Centre. So there's going to be a fantastic conversation about um, the Disability Resources Centre has a campaign at the moment, Transport for All, and they are, uh, there's just been a recent audit on tram accessibility in Melbourne that has shown that only 15% of tram stops in Melbourne are um, uh, accessible to people with mobility um, access needs. So um, that's going to be a great conversation, really interesting later. Thank you for organising that interview, Zeb. I really look forward to hearing that. So for now, let's start with Howard. Um, if you want to give us an update, Howard, about uh, what Friends of Public Housing have been up to. Yep. I thought we'd actually start with Jack. Um, let him have a go in his, in his debut. He's done a lot of analysis of the big build. That's really the, the big ticket item at the moment. Uh, we discussed it a bit last month. It had just been announced and I, it's pretty easy to work out the flaws in it. Um, but Jack's gone through it in more detail. So um, yeah, how about we just go to Jack? Yeah, so this is the Victorian government's um, commitment to spending on what they're calling social housing. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. Yeah, it was actually part of the um, budget announcement. So there was a $49 million billion budget they announced. That's for this year. And five billion of that was for this um, big housing bill. So it's a fair slab of the announcement. And I guess my initial reaction was I just saw the press release. So I've got, I've gone and googled some of the keywords, found out there's a whole new body called Homes Victoria established, full of website brochure, pretty little video with jingles, all that sort of stuff. You know. Sounds really good. And, um, you know, 12,000 public housing, you know, so, sorry, social housing drillings will be built. I never referred to the word public housing at all. And, um, and soon my reaction just went to outrage because you've got 100,000 people on the waiting list right now, moves very slowly, people wait years. There was, was a thing on the ABC the other night. There was a guy there... Has been waiting 11 years. You've got to be joking, you know. So this is a person probably somewhere around about the 50 of 1,000 in that list because it's, it's, it's graded by income and assets. And um, with all these people on the waiting list, there is zero public housing being announced, yet the public would think, oh, hang on, no, they're building all these heaps of social housing. Surely that's the same thing. And that's the thing I find as a public housing activist. First thing I found was you've got to get your terminology right. Um, social housing, community housing, affordable housing are very cute homespun words, but it's the same as me call calling Scotch College community schooling <laughs> or social schooling it's they're private businesses that are leveraging cute homespun uh, monikers to make them sound like they're actually of benefit to people that they are not a benefit of so there is zero benefit to all the people at the head of that waiting list and in march 
when a lot of the COVID incentives and, and subsidies kick out, you know, it, you know, my heart goes out to the people harmed by, by the Victorian COVID, especially. There are going to be a lot more people hit that who can't afford to uh, pay off their home. They're going to hit the rental market. They're not going to be able to afford the private rental market if they're on a basic new start, uh, that that type of you know, allowance, um, they're all going to be saying, "I want public housing," and they're going to end up, um, if you grade them by income, you know, somewhere in the middle of that fifty thousand, know, sorry, hundred thousand, and that means they basically will never get to the head of the queue because unless you build one more unit of public housing, no one moves off the head of the queue unless someone dies or leaves existing accommodation. So, Jack, so what is this? Jack in the big build, what, yeah. what's, can you just run us through the figures about how much is being spent, what it's being spent yeah. on? Yeah, I've got it right in front of me here. So this is a, the $5 billion. $532 million constructing new homes on, on public land. So they're, they're also donating public land and and they're calling it regeneration of those that land and that's already commenced so they say and there has been a bit of this going on in the background that we that actually a lot of the public housing activists don't even know about 948 million dollars working with the private sector to spot purchase homes and projects in progress already ready to build so basically they're going to work with developers and construction firms to you know, build more housing. Um, so this this is not working with, with you know for public housing. Uh, One thousand three hundred eighty million dollars um, funding for projects by the community housing sector. So what's community housing? I think I, I sort of already spelled it out. It's uh, it's private companies that provide housing to people on. Uh, you know, moderate level incomes, not the people at the head of the queue. I'll pick people from from back in you know back in the tail end of the queue uh, first, from an economical point of view, and they won't pick people of any any sort of you know personal issues, mental health, disability, whatever. You know, it's just they'll go for the low risk tenant on a higher income. So that's directly going to those people. Oh, and then another two two thousand one hundred and forty million dollars. Funding for new opportunities with the private sector and community housing partners. So, let it, let it, yet again, um, pro, you know, community housing, and they actually say there that they're, they're, they're going to look at building this, this lot of stuff, the 2.14 billion, on um, public land. So, public land plus money to private companies. So, that all adds up to 5,000 million. So no funding in there specifically allocated to public uh, housing, Jack? There, no, not, not, not to build, but there's stuff that was already going on in terms of maintenance. And so they basically go and restated their old maintenance stuff. And they've also, there was a thing called a public housing renewal program, which actually got renamed by, even by the government as a social housing renewal program. Uh, and that's still getting funding and it's widely accepted that that is just purely funding community housing. Um, so, and, and also displacing public tenants from those estates. So it's actually, you know, putting pressure down on, on, on the whole thing. So it, it's, a, it's a whole joke. And they also talk about this new terminology called uh, affordable housing and inclusionary zoning. Uh, I'm not sure if people are aware of what that, that all means. What does um, inclusionary zoning mean? Okay, very simply, it requires any developer to include below market rate units in a new project. And that's typically around 15%, 10, 15, 20%, and, and make them below market and affordable. And so, one of, and so the first myth about uh, inclusionary zoning is it's not for properties for sale. It's about rental properties. You can't sell something below market rate to a lucky recipient who then gets to on sell years later, you know, at whatever the market rate is going. So, yeah, so firstly, it's, uh, and it's basically moving money out of the public purse 
to subsidise private private development. Um, I looked around. There's heaps of uh, research in the marketplace, positive for inclusionary zoning, but it's all done by the community housing, the the private industry lobby. Yeah. So you know they, they've got they've got researchers, they've got people all over the place that spew out stuff positive for this. And I went and had actually look look about. It. There's research back to 1980 from people like the professor at Harvard Law School just saying this stuff is rubbish because anything that you're going to rent at below market rates, who's covering the cost? Uh, there might be the buyers of the other units in the, in the um, development because the, the developer will have to put up the costs to pay for all that. So in the end, it actually, the, the, the conclusion from a lot of the researchers was that actually you know, raises the overall cost of housing in an area. The other thing that's really crook about inclusionary zoning, I, I found a sample agreement um, that the Vic government was actually um, showing. And in there, it, it even said, include the name of the housing association you're doing the development with. So it's obviously done with community housing in mind. And, you know, how long is the rent going to be at 80% of market rate? They actually have in their um, time-based limits um, five years, and then it goes back back on market rate. Uh, the tenant getting the property below market rate has to give it up, get evicted, and and there's already evidence around that happening. So this stuff is just temporarily. You know, it might even be ten years. The whole point is, and people in favour of this will argue, well, you know, we can we can tighten the rules. Yeah, sure. You might tighten the rules if you weren't in bed with these people. But frankly, um, you know, the government is working with business, big business in some areas, and in this case, you know, medium business, it's it's developers, it's their mates. They go to the same conferences, you know, the, the public housing activists don't go to conferences in Darwin and pay $1,300 for a... Uh, for a ticket to the to the conference, that's what exactly what happened just just last year in a in the um, national uh, homelessness conference. So who went there? All community housing businesses, the um, the you know government ministers. They're all there presenting. They were schmoozing at dinners. Um, lots of lobbyists, you know, researchers. It's 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 just a smooze. It's just a it's just a rot. Um, bottom line is. No new public housing to move those people. The, the first 25,000 or 30,000 in, in that list will have to keep on waiting for someone to move out or you know, die or whatever for a property to become available unless we build more. And frankly, this is a heads in the sand attitude. I mean, this is going to hit big time in March, March, April. I have no idea what the government thinks it's going to do about it. But then again, it's ignored this for the last 20 years and let that waiting list grow. Let people sleep in cars, let people couch search, uh, surf, and so on it goes. That was a long, that was a long answer, sorry. <laughs> yeah, um, I'd like to just uh, call in Shane McGrath now from uh, Housing for the Aged Action Group. One of the things that... Um, Jack was talking about, Shane, is um, affordable housing and, and housing for the age work with older people who have been basically priced out of the private rental market, right? So what's your experience with this idea of um, that it's possible to make affordable housing with some regulation? Um, I mean, we're pretty sceptical about that as an approach. We're a strongly pro-public housing organisation. We think that that is, you know, undoubtedly the benchmark for, for good accommodation for older people. Um, you know, affordable housing that's that's capped at something like eighty percent of of a completely unaffordable private rent is you know eighty percent of unaffordable is is still pretty unaffordable. Um, overwhelmingly, for our our members and clients who are, you know, uh, either receiving new start or receiving some sort of a pension, um, it, it's not going to be significantly more affordable for them. They're still going to be experiencing the same kinds of rental stress. Um, yeah. Can I, can I just put in my, my two cents or, or switch over to my hobby horse for a sec? Um, I think it's worth talking just briefly about um, the housing announcement as a kind of worker issue. Um, you know, obviously the effects on, on tenants are very significant and I, I'm glad that we've like devoted quite a, a lot of time to that. But, you know, we talked last time about part of the reason that the government favours 
uh, you know, so, so-called social housing favours community organisations is to shift away from permanent uh, public sector jobs with good wages and conditions, you know, relatively strongly unionised workforce towards, you know, a government that, that claims to be concerned about insecure work to the community sector, which is completely dominated by short-term contracts, uh, you know, weaker wages and conditions, lower levels of unionisation. Um, that's one of the reasons that we should be opposing something like this. In terms of, of workplace issues, though, the, the other thing that's striking about this is quite explicitly part of the government's reason for the housing announcement. It's not just about putting people in homes, but it's about producing jobs, right? Like we're in this recession coming out of COVID. But the jobs they're talking about creating aren't the, the, the community sector jobs or public sector jobs for for social workers, for housing workers, for outreach workers, um, for those kinds of relatively feminised fields, they're talking about construction work, which is a male-dominated industry. And the recession, the, the COVID-related recession has hit women's jobs much harder than men. Uh, the unemployment rate in Victoria for women at the moment is significantly higher than it is for men. Um, and before the budget, we heard promises from the Andrews government that they would specifically address that, that the you know, they knew that it had been a bit blokey the way they tackled the, the recession at first and they were going to address that. And, you know, instead, what we've got is this focus on building houses for, for like Jack was saying, for private businesses um, rather than, you know, creating better support networks for, for people who need them. Yeah, and it's really a bit of a, a vicious cycle in a way, I, I suppose, isn't it? Because if less people have secure work, then there's going to be more people um, that have difficulty finding housing that they can afford. So, And what they're doing is actually costing more. You know, the more, the more you outsource, the more people are making profit out of this. And, and they're actually building up market developments, uh, which, which, as um, Shane said, the rents are pretty expensive in those. And so there are only certain people who are on that housing waiting list. Well, way back at number nine, nine, 99,000 or you know, in a list who can afford it. So what's that doing? It's creating an economic apartheid. You know, it's a cr- creating elitism. You know, some people can get into these places uh, supported by the government's subsidies and others can't. And they're left waiting 11 years. Yeah. So, Jack and Howard, what's the um, position that Friends of Public Housing are taking and what kind of moves do you want to see instead? Well, firstly, I should... Well, effectively, we've recognised it from the announcement from the outset as being pretty much a con um, because it doesn't look after public housing. And uh, we're supporting, uh, you know, parties that will actually... Um, call it for what it is. So, for example, the Greens initially uh, got conned as well. Um, if you listen to last month's broadcast of, of this program, uh, you would have heard all the comments, favourable comments from all the, all the Greens MPs in Victoria. And uh, then when we started to um, uh, message them about what a, you know, what a con it was, and then there were some articles in the, the media about, you know, what a con it was. They quickly changed their their analysis, and now they're at the point where um, Ellen Ellen Sandell, the uh, Greens MP for Melbourne, uh, put out a really good statement recently, and so did Samantha Ratnam. Uh, so we that's now that we see that as one of our main focuses because the Greens in Victoria have actually adopted Friends of Public Housing's uh, pro-public housing policy. And we were a bit worried that they were going to um, just fold uh, once the big bill came out, but they're, they're back on track. So we're happy with that. Uh, so that's one, of, that's one of Friends of Public Housing's focuses. Um, but, you know, it's just a continuation of what's, what's been happening for the last 30 years. So we're going to keep doing what we've been doing since we were established nine years ago. Yeah, if I could add to that as well, it still gets down to this whole thing of getting the terminology right. Uh, what's public housing, community, social, affording housing? Um, I, I did a few presentations during the year to grassroots um, you know, branches of um, some of the political parties and everyone was staggered 
when they heard the truth. They said, oh, we always thought it was the same. We thought there were, you know, there was no problem. And, um, and, and, and it's pretty shameless how the government actually exploits the fact that people don't understand the difference. There was an, there was an announcement right in the middle of COVID um, where they, you know, they announced a, a program to help the homeless. That was a headline. Then I read the details and I'm building 780 social housing homes with community housing organisations. So it's actually going to be zero help to the homeless. Actually, just And and, it's shameless that they could even use such a headline. Just talking about um, what Friends of Public Housing has managed to achieve and and to an extent public housing Australia as well. Um, So over the, the, you know, nine years or so, uh, the whole debate has really changed. So we're now seeing uh, articles in the mainstream media, particularly Fairfax, which are actually differentiating between social housing and public housing. And it's also filtering through to um, other journals. Like there was a really good um, cartoon by Sam Wallman in, um, I think it was Overland, yeah, the Overland Journal uh, last year, which put the whole thing in graphics, uh, which was great. And I encourage everyone to jump on the overland and send Sam a message of thanks. And I'll actually post Mm. um, a whole lot of these links that we're talking about today on the Defendant Extend Public Housing Australia Facebook page so people can actually go in and have a look. Uh, Yeah, and we can pop some up on the City Limits um, podcast link as well. Um, And just if anyone's just tuned in, you are listening to City Limits and you're on 3CR and you can find our show also online at 3cr.org.au forward slash City Limits. We might actually just take a little break and we'll be back after after these announcements. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager, or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. corner of the land. Womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio 855am and streaming live at 3cr.org.au Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card, and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Okay, um, welcome back to listening to City Limits and we've got our housing update today. We've got Howard, Shane and Jack Verdens all on the line today. Um, so we've got about 10 minutes left uh, on the show for this section. Is there anything extra that you want to add before we finish? I've got a few more things to... Sorry, Shane. No, no, you go first and then I'll, I'll get mine in. Go for it. All right. Yeah, I wanted to uh, just talk about the fact that, uh, well, Jack was talking about the fact that he'd spoken to political activists 
about the difference between social and public housing. Um, and people might remember last month I was talking about uh, the Labor for Housing group uh, that met and sounded quite positive. Well, their uh, comment on the big build was released the same day as the big build was announced. So it was obviously colluded with the state government. And uh, it's just, it's quite cruel, really. Cruel is the right word to describe what they have done to their, like they say there's a thousand members of that Labor for Housing group. They say they're, we're emotional. To say we're emotional today would be the understatement. It's the biggest single investment in public community and affordable housing in this country's history. You must all be proud of this announcement. We're the only party that makes significant investment. Uh, thanks to Richard Wynne, the uh, MP, the housing, housing Minister, blah, blah, blah. And I couldn't see any critical comments on their Facebook page about it. Um, so, you know, that's really disappointing um, that they've managed to, the state government has managed to subvert the activists within their party. Um, and uh, they haven't managed to recognise the fact that it's not public housing and that social housing is not, is not public housing. Um, uh, the other thing to mention is that uh, we had, uh, well, actually, I want to talk about the fact, the claims by the government, which have been accepted by almost everyone, including academics, that it's the biggest build in uh, Victoria's history. Um, now, I've had a look, I don't think anyone's actually done any fact checking about this, but I've just done some calculations uh, based on statistics of public housing over the years and estimated it based on an assumption that Victoria's got a quarter of Australia's population. So if you go back to, well, the current big build is said to be 12,000 or maybe 16,000, depending on which re release you, you read. If you take the upper figure of 16,000, it's over four years. Uh, it's, as we said, it's not public housing, but even if you take the fact that it's either social or affordable housing, um, that's somewhere between three and 4,000 a year. Now, Victoria's now got a population of 6.5 million. If you go back to 1970, 1970 and 1973, um, there were 65,000 public housing units built across Australia. So you'd estimate 16,000 in Victoria. So that's pretty much the same as what they're claiming is gonna be the upper case for big build. But that was with a population of 3.5 million, which was just a little over half of what we've got now. So on a per capita basis, it's it's not anywhere near what the what the peak of uh, of uh, public housing building was in Victoria. You go to 84, 87, actually just to 70 to 73 included a Liberal state government and federal government. So it's actually pre-Whitlam, continued by Whitlam. So it was a bipartisan uh, Labor and Liberal policy back in those days to build a lot and to build public housing. 84, 87, all of Australia, 56,000 uh, public housing units built. So you'd estimate Victoria's got 14,000 or somewhere between four, three and 4,000 a year of actual public housing with a population of 4 million in Victoria. So again, it's, it's what we're currently getting is nowhere near um, per capita what it was back in 84 under Hawke. And it's only roughly the same as what it was in, in absolute numbers back then. So as I said, I don't think anyone's done a fact check. I've done a quick calculation and estimate and uh, it sounds like rubbish to me. Um, but what do you expect? Um, Shane, over to you. Um, thanks. Look, I just wanted to um, mention the rental and housing union, Rahu, who I think, you know, the emergence and development of that group has been one of the really positive developments um, in housing this year. Um, just wanted to, to read briefly from one of their press releases. Um, so last week, um, Launch Housing, uh, the housing and homelessness organisation was involved in trying to remove, what uh, will involved in what they called hotel exits. Um, so during the pandemic, the Victorian government provided accommodation for rough sleepers in hotels that were otherwise unoccupied. Um, and last week uh, on very short notice, 
um, the directive came to to remove those people and essentially to put them back on the street. Um, so, Launch is now committed to to you know to pausing their hotel exits, uh, you know, and at least until January 2021, which they call breathing space, uh, you know. And Rahu said they welcomed this move and acknowledged the bravery of frontline support workers and rough sleepers who shared stories that made this happen. The recent announcement meets the basic decency of not evicting people into homelessness over the holiday period, yet further measures are still needed into 2021. Um, and they quoted a Rahu member support worker who said, uh, again, this is the result of rough sleepers and support workers taking a risk by standing together without the support of our employers or housing providers or the Victorian government. The government are giving 1,200 support packages. However, there are 2,500 people in hotels. We want reassurance that the remaining 1,300 people won't be forced to sleep rough and back into precarity. We are stronger together and we'll keep proving that over again as we continue the fight for safe, affordable housing for all of us. Um, so if people are interested, I really encourage you to check out um, the Rahu, you know, website, Facebook page, social medias, all that. Um, if you're listening to this show, you're probably interested in housing issues in Victoria. Um, and yeah, you should uh, have a look and consider joining up. Thanks, Shane. Yeah, we will. We can put that um, website as well in the show notes for people to go and check out. Uh, it's good that there's some positive news in housing, even if it comes off the back of um, something else that we need to fight back against the government for. Um, Jack, did you also have anything last that you wanted to say? Yeah, I've got a couple of quick quick things. Um, first, I'd like to commend Hug for a recent report I came across called The Inequality of Public Housing and Community Housing. It's the first, I think, independent research I've seen that actually compares the two. Because people often ask that question. Um, and obviously, there's a lot more conditions supporting public tenants than there are community housing tenants. So it's highly unregulated, um, a lot quicker to get evicted, or less protection. Um, you know, it, and that's been inner city legal centres also done reports in this area as well on their website. So, uh, the great work there, um, Shane, and, and housing. Hag, I mean, I forget your acronym. Hag, say hag. Hag. I've, I've given it a European um, <laughs> sound, I think. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, um, I just want to mention Claire, who's the, the social work student who put that together. Um, after I was banging on about workers' rights before, we just made her do it for free as part of her placement, but she's done a, a fantastic job. Yeah. Um, yeah. The other thing I just want to mention is um, sort of rem removing a stigmatisation of public tenants. We saw a bit of that during the lockdown of Flemington Towers. And, you know, I'll, I'll read it out, you know, Public tenants are usually just people on low income. So they're actually the health care workers, the aged care workers that we all became familiar with, who get paid a pittance. Um, they, you know, they, they might be just labourers. It's all unskilled work. So these are public tenants. And sure, you also have people with disabilities and mental health issues. But most public tenants are just everyday people existing in society who need help with their rent because the market has outpriced itself. Um, so we really need to address that. And all we really get to see is when, when there is discussion about public housing by the government is that they stick to just the homelessness little part of it, which admittedly is about 25,000 people in Victoria. Um, but, you know, they are not your typical public tenant. There's a heck of a lot of other people in our society that are needing that help, uh, and yet the big guys are just stigmatising this space. Um, so I'm into that. Yes, thank you, Jack. So such good points all round. Um, and, yeah, I think it's just really important that we sift through all of this confusing terminology and political doublespeak and... Uh, remember the core of the matter, which is that everyone needs um, a place to live that is secure and safe. So um, thank you all for coming on the show. Uh, Howard Morosi and Shane McGrath and Jack Verdens. Listeners, check out Friends of Public Housing, Housing for the Age Action Group and Rahu on our uh, 3CR website or look them up online. Um, yes, thank you all for being on the show. Thanks, Ian. You're welcome. Um, thanks very much. Look forward to seeing you all next year. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. 
Women workers answer to COVID. Capitalism created this crisis, workers can solve it. Like the sound of shorter working hours in secure employment with no loss in pay? A comfortable income for everyone. Taxing the rich? Jobs made public with workers in charge. You women who want to be free, just take a tip from me. Radical Women is launching this winning plan on the 8th of December at 7pm. Join others to take these demands into our unions and communities. All genders welcome. Contact Radical Women at optusnet.com.au. Radical Women is a 3CR supporter. Lazy Wednesday afternoon on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And if it happens in our town, we'll, we'll play, play the soundtrack. Stuff the neighbours. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Okay, so back on City Limits today um, for our interview with Kerry Cassidy, who is the Executive Officer for the Disability Resources Centre, or DRC. The DRC has been running a campaign to end lifelong lockdown because while the 5K radius imposed due to COVID no longer applies to Victoria, many people with disabilities experience travel restrictions daily due to inaccessible public transport. So welcome to the show, Kerry. Thanks for having me. Great. Um, Would you like to start just by giving a bit of background to the DRC and um, to the Transport for All campaign? Sure. Uh, Disability Resources Centre was established in the International Year of the Disabled Person in 1981. So we've been looking at transport in particular for almost 40 years now. And we have members and also on our com- uh, members on our committee of management who've been around through, through those uh, four decades. So we're very committed to seeing full accessibility to people with disabilities on our public transport. Yeah, awesome. Have you seen, um, I suppose, much improvement from those 40 years until now? Okay, well, fair to say, I have not been around for the whole 40 years. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, but I think it's fair to say that there has been improvements. I think everyone would see that. Um, If you're a regular transport user around Victoria, that there have been um, significant improvements. But there is a long way to go. Um, We did a project back in 2018 where we went to some of the regional areas. We went to Ballarat, um, Sale, um, Shepparton, and also in the metropolitan Melbourne area to try and understand what the issues are today for people with disabilities. And some of them um, remain the same. Things like um, tr- the tram network has, is extensively inaccessible to people, particularly with, particularly with mobility um, requirements, whether they're wheelchair users or scooter users or they use a cane. Yes. So um, recently an audit was carried out by the Victorian Auditor General's Office on the accessibility of tram services um, and it was revealed that only 15% of the services delivered um, a low floor and accessible level access stop, which is just tiny. Um, So 
is the DRC responding to that um, particular audit in any way? Yes. Well, at the moment, we are looking at well, what is our response to that? We actually believed, um, you know, over the last two or three years that the system was about 26, 27% accessible. So when the report came out a couple of months ago, we were quite um, startled that only 15% of services are actually accessible. Now, it's really important that we understand too that even if you can get on a tram, it doesn't mean that you can actually get off at your destination. Yeah. So whilst, you know, 15%, it sounds terrible, the actual reality for people is that it's probably much less than that again. Um, so we think that there needs to really be a um, long-term plan by the state government to bring trams up to full accessibility. Um, so that's definitely one of the, the big things that we're campaigning for in our um, accessible public transport campaign, Transport for All. Um, it was interesting to see in the most recent budget that 100 trams have been um, announced to enter the tram network, which is, is great news. Yeah. Um, however, there's going, to, there's going to be a bit of a time lag for that to happen because we know that the focus of this budget was on creating jobs, which is great, but how long is it going to be for us to um, purchase these trams, build them, um, and then have them actually running on the network? So we need to understand in the meantime, people still cannot get on trams in Melbourne. Yeah, and it's, it's funny that, I mean, Melbourne is, is obviously investing in the public transport network and has um, Victoria's big build with lots of new infrastructure, like massive infrastructure mm. projects. It doesn't seem like it would be beyond the, their capacity to, um, to go back through the network and do something that seems relatively simple as at least um, providing the level access stops. Yes, yeah, so there are two parts to this. Um, one is having low floor trams that people can access from a level um, platform. So there's one, one part of it is the rolling stock. The other part is actually creating those accessible stops. Yeah. Um, and there's a long way to go. And we know it, it is a complicated process. You've got um, council planners involved. You have roads involved. Um, but, you know, we have, I think, the largest tram network in the world. Wouldn't it be great to say, be able to say that we have the largest accessible, fully accessible tram network in the, the world? And it's not just for people with disabilities who live in Melbourne. It's for people who come in from the regions and yeah, they, absolutely. you know, they might come in on V-Line and then they need to move around um, the city area for might be medical reasons, it might be for cultural, um, entertainment, all sorts of reasons people come into Melbourne. Um, the other side of it is we, when COVID passes and we, we come back to some normality, it would be great to say to tourists that, you know, you can get around Melbourne if you yeah. have a disability. Yeah. Um, so I, I think there's some huge gains that we could make by um, full, making a fully accessible tram network. Yeah, so true. Um, I suppose the other thing is that um, the mobility access on tram networks is is not by any means the only accessibility issue in um, Melbourne's public transport network. What would you say would be the other major considerations that um, that the public transport network needs to deal with? Sure. Um, the other one of the other big items that we've been campaigning for over the last 18 months has been the, the V-Line trains out west. So particularly to Warrnambool and Shepparton. Yeah. We had a story with the ABC, um, a young man who lives in Warrnambool and he's a wheelchair user. 
and he had to actually forego doing the tertiary studies that he wanted to do because he couldn't reliably get on a train in Warrnambool and travel to Geelong. Right. Um, and there's footage of, of him and his mum and his mum actually when she accompanies him on public transport, she actually physically lifts him onto the carriage because um, there's no accessible area often. Now, just to be clear, they have an accessible carriage on these very, very old classic fleet trains. Yeah. Um, but the accessible carriage is not always attached. And part of the problem is that the, the trains are just so old and there's not a appetite for investing into updating these services because down the track they're looking to replace them. Right. So um, you may have seen in, in this past budget another um, confirmation of an announcement that they're going to upgrade the lines out west so that they can then upgrade the trains, um, which all sounds fabulous. But again, these things take years, absolute years. So what's the solution for people in the meantime? Mm -hmm. What's We have something um, under the um, disability standards for accessible public transport transport called equivalent access. So transport operators are meant to provide an alternative if the mode of transport that you're trying to catch is not accessible. And something that V-Line has been doing for a long time now is um, providing accessible taxis for people. So think of an, a taxi going from Warrnambool into Melbourne. That's a very expensive, for one thing, um, way to do it. But secondly, it's a lot of these country towns don't actually have an accessible um, taxi service. So you may get on a, tra a train, go to a train station at Camperdown, for example, on the Warrnambool line, um, and if you can't get on that train, you might need to wait for an hour for an accessible right. um, taxi to come from Warrnambool to pick you up and then take you into the city. Now. The impact for that for people with disabilities is that it takes an accessible taxi out of circulation in that country or regional town. Yeah. So it's very impacting um, on the community generally when services like V-Line use taxis as equivalent access. So that, I guess, is the third thing that we're speaking about, um, that we need better working solutions to provide equivalent access for people with disabilities. Yes, and there's also, I suppose, an intersection there with, um, with climate change and emissions and just part of the idea of public transport being um, uh, a more sustainable mode of transport that we need to be able to include everyone into that public transport network. Um, to, Absolutely. To avoid having to make long car trips um, from Warrnambool to Geelong or, or, or other like long trips that could be done and are being done um, by train, um, having to make those um, more emitting forms of transport the, the only option. That's right. And you know what we don't know is because the public transport system is so um, unpredictable for people that often we what we don't know is how many people would use public transport if it worked better for them. Mm, so yeah. there'll be people who, who will organise a taxi or organise a friend or family member to drive them places when in fact if they were actually able to um, independently use public transport that wouldn't happen. So it's very hard to measure just the absolute cost on our environment of an inaccessible transport system. Yeah, and I suppose that just goes to show that making transport accessible, I mean, it's obvious, but it's just by no means um, a, a siloed issue for, for people with um, accessibility needs. It really affects the whole um or it has intersections with the whole of society and effects on the whole of society because if a proportion of the population just can't use public transport or there are 
massive barriers to entry in using public transport, then that's going to affect climate change. Absolutely. And that's why we actually named our campaign Transport for All, because mm -hmm. it's not just people with disability who, who uh, need better access. It's, it's our ageing population. It's the reality that, you know, parents want to be able to safely move young children or babies around on public transport. It's um, people who may experience an injury temporarily but still want to be able to get to work or the places that they need to go to. Yep. So when we're thinking about transport, it, it's not just about people with disabilities. It's about creating something that is usable, it's reliable, and it gets people to where they need to go. Um, just in terms of, of people with disability, we've had a lot of... Um, focus on, with the NDIS, focus on um, opportunities for people to participate, yeah. um, providing support so that people can work, um, providing better support so people can study. And so we have this, um, I guess, mobilised in some ways, um, opportunity for people to um, go to these places. And there's this very essential element that is missing. So it, it's all wonderful to have these places and, and these supports, but it's not good if you can't get there. Yeah, that's crucial. Yeah. yeah. So we really do see accessible public transport as something that that is essential and brings all of these opportunities um, more closer to people. Yeah, so true. Um, I suppose... On that note, we're getting we're getting towards the end of our time. But how can listeners um, and um, city limits? How can we support the DRC and this transport for all campaign? Sure. Well, we're looking to do an a direct action, hopefully in February next year. Yep. Um, so we would love to hear from anybody, and you don't actually, it doesn't actually have to be just people with disabilities. It could be anybody who values. Um, and understands how necessary a fully accessible public transport system is, you can go to our website, which is drc.org.au, and you can follow the prompts to join our campaign. And once you do that, you'll, um, we'll have your details so we can keep you updated on what we're doing in the coming months. Splendid. Thank you so much, Kerry. Um, we can also put the links to your um, website and the Transport for All campaign in our show notes so people can access that there on the 3CR website. Um, and yes, thank you so much. And I think we, we did well despite the, the technical difficulties <laughs> at the start there. Thanks um, for having me, Zeb. It's been great. Yeah, it's been really nice to meet you. Um, so good luck with, with that and I'll certainly be... Um, join enough onto the mailing list to see what happens next. Excellent. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much. And that concludes our City Limits program for the year. We'll be back next year in February. Um, Kevin will be back too. And hopefully we'll be able to do it live from the studio. So we're looking forward to that. Stay well and stay safe, everyone, over the summer. And tune in next year. I think Welcome to Country is a very dangerous concept and initiative. I really don't know where Welcome to Country even merged from. I know that I don't think it was a, obviously an Aboriginal initiative. I think obviously governments had uh, introduced that as they were pacifying our flag of resistance. You know, the idealism that lies behind that obviously is so that white people can feel a sense that they're more guests and they've got a right of ownership and to be here. If we're going to continuously welcome them to country, what that does, it rectitudes the fact of the moral racism issues in which they perpetrate against our people because how can we be talking about all these other issues and then compromise a hypocrisy in our own selves to welcome these murderers and these uh, slave traders and this barbaric sense of what they've done to 
occupy Australia on one hand and, and welcome them on the other. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests slow down the path of fire, and this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically, these big, large fires have been quite rare, but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common. So we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change, which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 
3CR Community Radio, 855am. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.